Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Before we get going to today's show, I want to confess something to you. I did something taboo recently. I read the comments. I know this is not something you're supposed to do, but I did it anyway. And one of the comments got under my skin. But it's going to result ultimately in a positive change for this podcast. The comment mentioned that I didn't get into deeper topics beyond food, movies, and self-help advice, which anyone who listens to this podcast knows that's a hilarious comment. But what I'm going to do now as a result of this comment is begin to add to the description of the podcast all the major topics and questions that I will cover. Enough about that. Let's get to today's show. Today we have Kevin Michael on the show. As director of aviation at the Fresno Yosemite Airport, Mr. Michael is the chief executive officer of Central California's aviation system, which includes the Fresno Yosemite International and Fresno Chandler Executive Airports. FAT is a small hub airport served by seven domestic and two international airlines. FAT has enjoyed 70% growth since the recession in 2010 and accommodates 2 million passengers annually and continues to grow. Chandler is the largest general aviation airport in Central California and serves as a reliever to FAT. Mr. Michael has served Fresno airports for 19 years. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in architecture from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, is a licensed architect, and has over 40 years of experience in the design and construction industry. Mr. Michael also is an instrument-rated pilot and has been flying for 35 years. This was an amazing conversation where we cover a wide range of topics. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Michael and Baker will take us there. Kevin, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, gosh. You know, um, one of the nice places I like to go to is just right down the road from the airport. Uh, it's called Letty's. It's a, it's a Mexican restaurant. And, you know, when we have, when I have visitors from out of town, like when airline corporate visits me or the airport and they need to go out and get a bite to eat, they always say, where's a good place for authentic Mexican food? Because they know this region is, is known for that. And they're coming from Chicago, they're coming from Dallas, they're coming from all over the country, and they just don't get that kind of flair in these places that you see in the Midwest or even on the East Coast. So, you know, Letty's is right down the street there. It's on Clinton and Chestnut. It's great atmosphere. It's great food. It really gives them a sense. And I've never heard anything negative come out of anybody I've taken to that place. So, and never had bad service. It's great. You know, and I, I've... Just moving here and talking to people about going to the airport. Uh, sometimes there's this reputational thing about the neighborhoods around the airport. Um, and in terms of, so I, I haven't heard good food recommendations from that area of town. So this is nice. So, so uh, what do you like to order at Letty's? Oh, I usually get the, you know, like the, uh, the taco combo plate. It comes with great beans and it comes with the rice and the, and you can get all enchiladas, you can get tacos. I usually go for the tacos and it's just, it's just, it's just really good. And they have a great variety of authentic Mexican drinks, uh, sodas, and so forth, right, right there. I can't, you know, there, there's something about horchata that just, uh, it like runs in my blood. And I, <laughs> when I see that pitcher thing that's like turning the rice milk, I just like my eyes glaze over and I can't, I can't help myself. I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, so when you're not by the airport, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of a down to earth. I'll always go for a great pizza. You know, I like going to Michelangelo's out there in downtown Old Town Clovis. Uh, it's just a family run business, great calzones, great pizza, great atmosphere. So I'll take, I'll take my boys there. I'll take the family there and we'll just relax and have a, just a great meal. That's awesome. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, get into a few different things. Um, so I, uh, in, in preparation of this, for this interview, I kind of, you know, both thought about and, and did some reading on airports and airport design. And 
I came across this uh, French anthropologist that referred to airports as non-places, uh, that there are, they are places that have no distinct identity, that are places to get to another place, so places between places. Do you agree? Do you think airports are non-places? No, actually, they are, they are great places. They are, they, um, every airport has its own identity, its sense of place. And, you, and yes, you know, I'm an architect. And so you think, well, what, what, you know, how does an architect view an airport? What are they? Well, I'll go to the, like this morning, I went out to the terminal at 6 a.m. just to observe. What architects do is they just observe people in the environment. Now, in this case, we're talking about a terminal, right? And so what are they doing? Are they lost? Are they confused? Do they know what they're doing? Are they comfortable in their setting? You know, the training you get as an architect really says, you know, uh, this is a, is a nice place to be and this is not a nice place to be in. But, and I can tell you, if I can brag a little bit, I get the sense as an architect that people enjoy being in our airport. There's a great sense of place with the trees, the wayfinding is really good, the color scheme, you know, it's not overbearing, but it's colorful enough. So in other words, you wanna create a very comfortable atmosphere. And I'll take it one step farther. You know, when you look at all of the, the, the things that an airport does, what the airlines do, and just the whole experience of flying, from the moment that you drive on into the parking lot and go into the terminal, through the checkpoint, onto the gate area, it's all about doing all you can to reduce the stress. You don't wanna drive around forever looking for a stall. Am I gonna miss my flight? You don't wanna walk in and see long lines anywhere. You don't wanna be delayed. You wanna be comfortable. Are there convenient restrooms nearby? Are there convenient you know, gift and news and, and beverage shops nearby? All of this plays into just keeping people feeling comfortable. And that's a direct result of the architecture and how these facilities are laid out, how they flow and how they're designed. Yeah, I feel like you know that they're, you know, I, I disagree with this non-place too because, and, but the reason I disagree with this is because people always tell you the airports they hate, right? And, but they don't appreciate the airports that maybe they love because the idea is you're just, you're, it's like a good road, right? You notice when the road has potholes, but then the, when you're driving smoothly and it gets you to your destination, you don't notice it. You're just, you're just floating along. And so to talk a little bit about um, thinking big picture about at airports, um, we talked, you just mentioned briefly that you have an architecture background. Um, and I know from doing my research that uh, people that are directors of aviation can come from all kinds of different fields. Um, and I know you also have a pilot's background, so we'll talk about that in a second. But can you, can you share a little bit about what, how someone with an architecture background might look at an airport differently than someone that doesn't have that background? Well, you know, all airport directors, you know, are focused in on the business model of an airport, just the operation. Put that aside for a minute. Really, from the lens of an architect, it's, it's how people flow through the facility. It's everything working the way it needs to work. There's an expectation from the traveling public that when they get in there, everything is efficient. You know, there's the ticket counters are where they need to be, the signage is right. They can just get through the process efficiently. And so there's this natural flow that occurs that, that when, when I look at it, I can see pinch points right away without even thinking about, oh, this is a problem. We need to work on fixing this and make it better. For example, our biggest pinch point prior to now was parking. We were full. There was no place to park. And that's the last thing you want in terms of you getting in, finding spot. And so what are we doing right now? We're building a four level parking garage. It's supposed to open up in October. It's been in the planning for a while. And so that's a pinch point. We have other pinch points that I can see that I know that we're going to be continuing to work on. Some of them you work in partnership with the airlines because it's, it's really their customer and it's their operation. We're just providing the facilities to, to help make that experience be as best that it can for the traveling public. Yeah, it feels like you have to understand some deep things about human nature. It's kind of like urban planning or something where you're, you're designing a, a mini city in some ways, right? And I, I think, but I think 
the, the, mo the most difficult part of the experience for everyone is going through security, right? Um, and, you know, when you go through security, there are certain rules that you have to follow um, and you can't really uh, modify them to create a more pleasurable experience. So how do you think about, you know, managing that? And, and, and is that a pinch point or is that something that's kind of this separate world that's located within your uh, city? I mean, it really is a separate uh, piece of the experience within the airport environment. It's controlled by TSA. Uh, they have a mission to protect, you know, the traveling public and the national airspace. And so everything, if people just keep in mind that everything that they do is for their benefit. Now, it's never perfect. Sometimes a machine goes down, the lungs get longer than, than they should. Um, but, and TSA is constantly working on upgrading technology to help people get through quicker. But I will tell you this, you know, and, you know, and, and I do hear this a lot. When you compare an airport of our size to larger airports like in LAX or San Francisco, uh, and this is nothing against those airports, you know, you just don't have that type of weight at an airport our size. And that is, a, that's one of the biggest things we hear back from the public is, is that the convenience factor, not that it's perfect, but the convenience factor in a smaller regional airport just to get through the process with TSA as compared to a large airport where they're processing thousands of people, you know, hourly, right? If you could just imagine, and I think a lot of us have been through that experience. So, and, and the other piece of this is TSA works really closely with us as an airport and they work really closely with the airlines. They, they solicit feedback, they wanna improve their process. If it means they add more tables in the front end to help people kind of, kind of get their stuff uh, all together and, and ahead of the x-ray machines, and it helps people get through quicker, then they do. In fact, they recently did that about a year ago. So uh, TSA has been a great partner here at our airport, and we're always looking for ways to improve things. And as you know, we are planning a, a significant terminal expansion project, which we plan on being under construction next spring, just under a year from now. And we are working with TSA very closely on a brand new checkpoint, the latest technology, a lot more space, and TSA is beside themselves and excited the fact that they're gonna get a clean pallet to work with. And I've said, we are all about supporting technology so that you can process these passengers as efficiently and quickly as possible. Yeah, it seems like it's a it's a it's an efficiency question. Obviously, you know, if there's someone trying to do something destructive, you know, you don't want to move them through too efficiently, right? And so it seems like it's a balancing act, but it seems like we can leverage technology uh, to really help us mitigate that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a TSA employee, your job is hard. I mean, people hate you when they walk into airports. They look at security and they go, "This is the worst part of the experience for me." And so. How, how we can create something that's maybe still rigorous because that's what we need, while at the same time uh, not creating painful experiences for an average person that's just trying to get to work, get to a meeting, go on a vacation. Seems like that's in everyone's best interest. Yeah, I think TSA is moving in the direction of touchless technology. You know, uh, more sophisticated uh, screening applications that really reduce the amount of times that you need, you need to touch anything. You know, uh, for example, you don't have to, have a, we're looking forward to a day where you don't have to have a boarding pass. Anymore. You just, here's a driver's license, they scan it, you're done and you're through, right? Nobody's fumbling for another piece of paper or something on your phone for a boarding pass. Just give me your ID, we're done, right? So that's already happening at some airports. And then the, the, the equipment themselves, just the improvements in technology that we're hopeful that they'll they'll further develop is to, hey, if you can just walk through and nobody touches anything, including your bags, don't unpack anything. I mean, can you imagine what that would be yes. like? Yes. And TSA is 100% on board with going in that direction. So, no, I mean, you may be some years off on that, but they are focused on that, that type of direction. It's all about efficiency with the passenger because no question, when you look at the faces of people on the backside of a checkpoint, they're smiling. Mm -hmm. We're through we're going to the gate, we're going to get a cup of coffee, we're going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Those times where there's no line at security and I'm just, I'm rushing through, I'm slipping those flip-flops off and throwing them in the bucket, like that, that is a good day, especially if there's kids with me, you know, it's like, thank you. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about it from the pilot's perspective, because, you know, you have this kind of consumer facing side of the airport, but you also have the, the kind of the business facing side of the airport in dealing with another user of the airport, which is the different airlines and carriers. Uh, so how do you think about your job in dealing with airlines and carriers that maybe is different than thinking about uh, the people flying? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when I think about the, the, the flying and the, and the crew and the pilot piece of, of, the, of the experience, as a pilot, I'm thinking not only of the airport and the runways and the taxiways and all those things, but also the airspace above. And so it all ties together. And so um, one nice thing about our, our airport here is we do not have congested airspace. These aircraft can get in and out very easily, no diversions, um, no delays. You know, even with the fog we get in the wintertime, we have a, an FAA-approved landing system that allows the aircraft, if the pilots are certified and the aircraft has the right equipment in, to land in really, really low visibility conditions without any problem at all. And I've done it myself, uh, it, you know, years ago when I used to have a plane, I used to fly a lot. Uh, and it's really no problem whatsoever. Uh, here's, a, here's a perfect example. Um, I was on the inaugural flight with Southwest Airlines on April 25th, coming from Vegas into our airport. And um, pilot gets on the, the microphone, we're, we're on the ground in Las Vegas, and he goes, you know, uh, this is about an hour and uh, you know, 10 minute flight, but if we get clearance to go direct, not kind of zigzag around, sometimes you have to do that, depending on other traffic and kind of there's, there's, there's freeways in the sky, if you will. Uh, we can do it in about, you know, 48 minutes. Sure enough, pilot, and I've, I've done this myself, puts the request into the FAA uh, air traffic. Hey, can I go direct Fresno out of Vegas? And they got the nod, yes. And there's no crowding. And we just did a straight shot. And it was, it may have been actually about 42 minutes. It was, it was let's see, barely up and then down, it seemed like, over the Sierra Nevada. So, uh, and so that's one of the advantages of our airport in this location is this from a pilot perspective. Um, when I talk to pilots, they, they recognize that they like coming in here because you're not lined up with every, you know, uh, 45 seconds, one plane after another, like you are at, for example, in LAX or, or LaGuardia or something like that. So, so, and then on the ground, of course, you know, when we talk about maintaining our facilities with the lighting and the signage, and this is all for the pilots, right? Um, and, and we're converting everything to LED lights, and it's just that air, that airport at night just pops. And so the, the, the pilots really do appreciate it. So um, it, it just, from, from all perspectives, it works really well, our environment here. I want to talk about a little bit uh, to see the world through your eyes for a moment. So when you... Uh, you know, jump in a taxi to go to an airport, and it's not an airport you've been to. Uh, what are some indicators for you um, when you're experiencing, you know, the services of an airport? Um, what are indicators to you that the airport's well designed, or maybe that it's not well designed? What are what are things that you see as a visitor to an airport that maybe the average consumer doesn't? You know, the first thing I focus on is wayfinding, the signage. An airport, I've never been there. I'm not familiar with it. How am I, I fly in, how am I going to get to baggage claim or to ground transportation and then reverse? Where's the checkpoint? If I don't check a bag, I go straight to the checkpoint, right? Or the counters. So really, it's all about the wayfinding. And as long as you could just keep moving and follow the signage and whatever the color coding they're doing, that works really well. If, if you, if I can't, if I, if I'm not sure where I'm going, that's just a red flag for me. Right. And so, uh, and again, that works in both directions. So that's the very first thing. Um, if I'm flying out, I get to my gate, I start scoping out where's the restrooms, where's the, you know, coffee shop, where's the gift and news are they in close proximity to the gate. We have charging stations. So I just start looking at all those things. And as an architect, I, I, can't, I know I can't get away from this. I look at the volume of the space. Is it too low? Is it too tall? You know, and does it feel confined? And I, so I just have all this kind of sensory stuff coming into me. And, and that gives me a feel. You know what? 
this place feels great. And I'll tell you, one airport about a year and a half ago I went to, I've never been before. And it was Indianapolis. I've heard their airport is great there. Great airport. I mean, it's well laid out. It's, I, I want to say it's in the neighborhood of about 10 or so years old, so it's relatively new. And it just flows nicely. It feels good. You feel like you're in you know, control of what you're doing. You can find where you need to go. A great airport. And the reason you don't see that a lot is because most airports in this country are 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And so if you can imagine the constant renovation, the constant modernization that goes on in these airports over the decades, and so you're trying to make things work in today's world in a shell that was built, you know, 60 years ago. Airport's not that much different, right? This thing was built in the early 60s. So it's, it's 60 years old in of itself today. You know, we've, I've made sure that we've, when we do remodeling, we really do a gut job and build it back up instead of just trying to piecemeal things. And I think most people can understand this because in an older airport, go, wait a minute, this checkpoint's a little funny. It's tucked over here and it's winding around this way. And, and then maybe it's a little confined. Well, it's probably because this airport's been around for so long, well before they even had checkpoints, right? So they're trying to squeeze all these new functions in these older airports. And that's why airports are constantly trying to get themselves modernized and just, just to, so they can stay ahead of that curve and meet the demands of the traveling public. And people complain when they see, it's, it's funny because people complain when they see the airports are renovating or doing something and they just show up and like, oh God, you know, I wasn't expecting this on my trip, but it's like, it's, you know, they're one of those things that are, they're always open, right? So renovation happens it's going to happen continuously, even when it's in use. And, but it, you know, you kind of have to do it piecemeal, right? Because you can't do these massive renovations and close the doors because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like a waterline, right? Yeah. Many airports are 24 seven. Our airport here, a small regional airport, we're 24 seven. We never close. I mean, there are nights when that last flight is departing out to Guadalajara at 2.33 AM. Well, 3.30, TSA starts showing up, 4 o'clock, the doors open for the next morning. So it's, it's just nonstop. And you're right, just a small little maybe a restroom remodel. You still got to do it. You got to get it done, right? So it does take a lot of planning. It is a challenge. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, just, it's part of the job. And it's just it's a challenge that uh, I frankly enjoy. What, what do you think um, is the way forward? Maybe not, maybe not at Fresno's airport, but a lot of airports, one of the most painful experiences is like pick up, drop off, parking, all that. You know, the parking makes sense. You just make more parking spaces. But the drop off experience, I mean, if you're at LAX, you know, at 8 a.m. trying to drop someone off, it's, oh. just, it's just horrible. So is there, is there a way forward, do you think, that can make that easier for people? Or, or is that just kind of one of the natural things that just kind of comes with airport drop off? You know, it is a challenge. And, there, and the thing about that is there's no one answer. Every airport has its own unique challenges. You know, LAX has got a multi-billion dollar improvement program going on. And a big part of that program is exactly as you say, it's addressing the congestion at the curbside. They really want to pull cars off of that. They really want to somehow provide, um, and nobody likes this, remote parking, so forth and so on. And I'll tell you, one of the things in the last, say, five years that has really impacted the, the traffic congestion at airports, and, and not so much us, and we've seen some of it, but not, not a lot, is uh, the TNCs, like the Uber and the Lyft. Yeah. So much so that large airports have actually dedicated parking garages. If you are an Uber or Lyft driver, you go stage right here, and you can't come up to the next spot closer until you get that on your phone, right? And that has been a big push for airports nationwide, even at our airport. Now we're not, we're not super crowded. It gets a little busy, obviously. Uh, at certain you know, early morning, it's busy. Late in the evening, at night it is with our international flights, but we had to designate a certain curbside area because we have two curbs. We have three lanes and then a the middle curb and another three lanes for the TNCs, buses, taxis, hotel, motel shuttles, we put them all on the outer curb to try and free up the direct curbside access for those people who need to drop off 
get your bags out. Maybe it's uh, you know, mother dropping you off, she's going home, or maybe it's, it's dad unloading everything and circling around and parking, whatever it is. Uh, and that's what we've done here locally is pushed all of those ancillary uh, ground transportation off the main curb. And we have a total of six lanes out there, and so far it's been working well. And, uh, and uh, but I'll tell you, with the construction of the new parking job, part of that planning was if we need to expand more lanes, we have the ability to do that with the garage in place. We set the garage back a little farther for further expansion in the future. So that is a big issue, especially at larger airports, but, but we're addressing it here as well. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about general aviation, which is something that people maybe don't think about at airports. Um, so what is your philosophy on working with general aviators and how do you maybe balance the needs of commercial, uh, commercial flight with general aviation or is, or is maybe general aviation just something that should be, I don't want to, I don't use the word relegated, but maybe there are smaller airports where it makes more sense. Um, and as airports expand, it just, it just gets less and less, uh, practical. Well, it's certainly that's the that's true true at larger airports. I mean, they're, they're so busy. There's just it's difficult to squeeze in smaller general aviation, slower aircraft into this line of large jets coming in. At our airports, not so much of a problem. But you know, general aviation is an important part of what happens at an airport. Um, we have a fairly robust corporate general aviation sector here in Fresno. What we have found over the last five, six, and seven years is that um, the price of fuel, the price of hangar space, availability of hangar space in the Bay Area, in the LA Basin is so high that corporations have been looking to Fresno's airport. Do you have space? And we're just gonna park our plane there. And when that plane needs to go somewhere that's owned by a corporation, the pilot comes here, you know, jumps in, flies to, you know, uh, Hayward Airport or, or, or San Mateo or wherever they need to go in the Bay Area, pick up their, the owner or the client, and off they go. So that's a big deal. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that happen now. Uh, plus, uh, our airport has two uh, uh, general aviation providers. We call them fixed base operators. They're called FBOs. One of them is a worldwide organization. And I was talking to the manager of that and signature flight support. And I myself have used Signature all, all in various parts of the country, and they're great. But um, I, was, I said, how's it going here? How, how is business? How, are you busy? He goes, yeah. Can you believe it? At this airport, Fresno is in their top 10 nationwide in terms of utilization. It's just, for whatever reason, they're just busy. Whether it's corporations coming in to do business, whether it's uh, corporations from out of town just wanting to store their airplane here, uh, they're just really, really busy. So they're very happy with the presence. So it is, it, is, it is no problem. The airport is designed to accommodate these two functions, the airlines versus a corporation. That said, as many people know, we've got Chandler Downtown Airport. That's our original airport, 1929. United Airlines operated out of it. You know, up and through up through about 1948 is when uh, the commercial service came over to the current location here. But at Chandler, the FAA classifies Chandler Airport as uh, a reliever airport, meaning to the extent that general aviation, and and maybe not so much on the corporate side, but the smaller individual plane owners and so forth, if they're encouraged to use that airport because that will further reduce any congestion. And it's not that we have a lot of congestion here, but as you look to the future, to the extent that you reduce the congestion, it, it opens it up for more growth on the airline side and on the corporate side at the main airport here. And it seems like as something gets bigger, it gets more complicated. And when you have someone that maybe flies their fun little prop plane on the weekends, uh, you know, it, it'll just get more complicated for them to use uh, an airspace that, uh, has more planes in it. it. It seems like it only makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we, obviously there's a tower, right, at the Fresno Airport here, and there's no tower operating at the Chandler Airport. So from a pilot's perspective, it's pretty convenient to get in and out of that airport. You're avoiding all the airspace around uh, here, FAT, 
And so you're right, there's a convenience factor for pilots to utilize these smaller outlying airports. Really's a great airport, Madera, we've got you know, like seven of them here in the county, Harris Ranch, so forth and so on. So uh, there's a lot to choose from out there and, and those airports are, uh, I mean, we're full up. You know, oftentimes the, the, the wait, waiting list for hangar space is like, there's just like they're full and there's a wait list. Yeah, um, let's, we're gonna transition to a, a section I call overrated versus underrated. I'm gonna throw out some airports to you. Um, so I guess you're just gonna be calling out airports, whether they're overrated <laughs> or underrated. And then a few movies and then maybe a few food things. So let's start with a simple one. Um, is LAX over or underrated? You know, I think, I think it's underrated. And, and, and I'm gonna qualify that by saying, I think most airports are just underrated. Uh, you know, the, people don't realize what really goes into making an airport function. There's so much that happens, especially at an LAX where, you know, it's one, it's what, like, like the second busiest in the United States behind Atlanta. And, uh, to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dance that happens out there. So I really do think it's underrated in terms of, of its capability and um, really what it can provide to the traveling public. Absolutely. Okay. Um, another easy one, uh, the movie, The Terminal with Tom Hanks. Ah, classic, yeah. Classic airport movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't think that happens in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe a little you know, overrated. What's interesting, yeah, it's a little overrated. You know, what's interesting is, and people don't realize this, but we do, and here locally we do, but we have uh, an international facility at our airport, right? And I've been through international facilities at larger airports as well. Um, and it's just a scale thing. Ours is pretty small, LAX, you know, Toronto, they're big, right? Um, you, you can't get lost in these facilities. Let's put it this way. If you're going in the wrong direction somewhere in one of these facilities, there's some issue, that's not where you wanna be. I mean, Customs and Border Protection's job is to ensure everybody's coming into the country with the proper documentation, whether it's passports or whatever. And if you don't have the documentation, then they've got a kind of a path they're gonna take you in that facility that you probably don't wanna go in, right? Because what happens is if they can't rectify the documentation, you go on the next flight out. And they have areas in there where, you know, you're gonna stay and wait until the next flight out. So, you know, it's a very, very controlled environment. So I would say that movie's a little bit overrated. Okay. Uh, next airport, and, I'm, and some of these I'm gonna throw at you, might, you might not be familiar with them. Because my favorite airports to look at are in Asia, because I feel like in Asia they're building a lot of new airports, and so you got a lot of new cutting edge designs. And so this is one of my favorite ones to look at, uh, Incheon uh, International Airport in Korea. You know, uh, and there's others, I, you know, uh, beautiful facility, no doubt. I mean, these, these, these China and other countries, Indonesia, they are using, you know, top-notch airport uh, consultants, engineers, architects, and it's all about the flow of people, the operation, the experience. So beautiful facilities, no doubt in my mind, these things uh, work real well. You know, these are different countries. They have different priorities. When you look at some of these airports, you go, how much money are they spending on these airports, right? It's a little bit of different philosophy here in the US, certainly at our airport, where it's all about function first and convenience for the passenger, but we're definitely not doing Taj Mahals, right? Mm -hmm. So, but they're beautiful airports. And, and something people may not know, China, China is building airports all over the place. And, and, and there's locations in China where they're building airports on the scale of an LAX. That's average size for them. It's huge, the, the huge population, huge airports in these big cities. And so people don't realize that we look at an LAX or like an, or a Chicago, Dallas, you know, wow, what impressive facilities the, these are. Well, that's like China's going, yeah, we're building 10 of those right throughout the country in various, uh, various cities. So there's a lot of airport infrastructure going on in these Asian, Asian countries that just, just accommodate the demand. You know, and I, 
I don't want to generalize or anything, but when I'm thinking about uh, kind of like a Western culture that's more focused on the individual and uh, a more collective society, I wonder if they have a better sense of how to move people efficiently uh, than maybe uh, people in the West do. And I wonder if that translates to airport design. I mean, it, it must in some ways, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, it probably does. <clears throat> but I will tell you, this goes back to my earlier comment. We have a lot of aging infrastructure here in the U.S. with regard to our airports. It's just, you keep just adding on, you keep modifying everything. And some of these other countries, like you mentioned, uh, and in China as well, um, these are new airports. These are, these are five years old, four years old, six years old. So they are ground up designed to accommodate. If they think that airport can handle, uh, you know, 20 million passengers a year, well, they're designing them for 40 million and further expansions beyond that. So they really are thinking about how we accommodate these masses of people, not only now, but in the future. So they're thinking about all this. 50, 60 years ago, you know, not so much, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Next one is another uh, movie on my list of kind of uh, notable airport movies. Uh, the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney. Um, him going through TSA and describing how to do it efficiently and his, uh, his meandering to those, uh, uh, the uh, preferred customer lines. Uh, it, that movie just sat with me for a while. So do you think the movie's over or underrated? Oh, I think it's overrated a little bit. I think part of it's because of the dramatic impact of, of the movie itself, but absolutely can relate to what he was experiencing in that movie, right? I mean, we even see it here at this airport. You know, we'll... TSA has got the pre-check line, right? Mm -hmm. And we go out there and we have two lines at our airport and I'll go out there at six o'clock in the morning and there's this long line on the left side and it's the normal line and the other one's empty. And I go, and so what we have is we have ambassadors that walk around and just talk to people. Hey, do you have pre-check on your ticket? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump over to this line and go straight to the front, you know, but it's that, that communication TSA, our staff has with the public just to help facilitate what George Clooney was going through. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Last airport, uh, overrated versus underrated, uh, O'Hare. Uh, I, again, I have to say underrated. I mean, you know, um, O'Hare actually is doing a really good job. They've also got a multi-billion dollar program in place to expand their terminals and actually expand the runways. And you think about, well, wait a minute, if they're focusing more on the runways and maybe not as much on the terminals, how does that help? What's going on there, right? Well, the delays out of O'Hare have been notorious, right? It's a major Midwest hub. And people complain about getting in there and missing the connection. When's the next one? And it isn't so much the terminal facility as it is the capacity of the runways and taxiway system. They just cannot, it gets jammed up. And all of a sudden a plane comes in a little bit earlier and they can't find a place to park. They're held up on the runway or the taxiway and the next plane can't get out. So they've got a major program on the airfield which believe it or not, there was a study done about how that can improve the overall delays and wait times out of the facility. Yeah. That's I've kind been, of a different take. Right. I've been stuck on O'Hare's tarmac once or twice. But I also, <laughs> the other thing with O'Hare um, is that it has some of those excessively long haul. You know, like I, I tell people, if you run a, run a marathon, go to O'Hare, just because it's, <laughs> it just it is it it is like cavernous and it's like the catacomb like it just goes on forever and i i don't know if i don't know how to if there's a design way out of that if you just have a huge airport and that's just what it is uh but i i remember i i remember walking for half an hour or 45 minutes to get across to another terminal at o'hare and i just think is this the best design is this the best yeah. design well, I'll tell you, I look at it and there's three, there's three phases to, to that, that whole travel distance spread out scenario. One is walking. We got it here, right? Yeah. I mean, if it was another couple hundred feet longer, we go, yeah, we need to do some people movers in there. 
This is a walking thing because aircraft parking positions is what dictates the layout and size of these terminals. So there's a whole criteria to follow in that. And that's what spreads these things out. So walking is one. We're, we're okay. We get much bigger. We're going, eh, I'm not sure. Then the people movers, you see a lot of them at Phoenix, O'Hare, right? And then if you go to a third level, it's the trains, the underground trains you see at Atlanta, the above ground train you see at uh, DFW, right? So you have these different levels of how you move people. And I mean, nobody, none of them are ideal, right? But I will tell you, um, Atlanta, I think, is a pretty well-designed and efficient airport. Now they've got the underground trains and it pops you in at the different terminals. And what's, what I like about Atlanta is, okay, yeah, gotta take the train, they're pretty efficient, they're pretty quick, but once you get to the terminal, the terminal itself is not super huge. Yeah. You know, you can go, you can go left or right down wings to gates, but it's not like, uh, you know, Phoenix, you're going from area to area to area and across a roadway into another area, you know, which, you know, to me, Atlanta is much more efficient because of that type of design. Yeah. And I, and I think Salt Lake City is moving in that direction with their new airport that they're building. Yeah, maybe they, maybe it's designed that way. So after O'Hare, that after you eat enough food there, their heavy food, cheese, cheese loaded food, you just have to work it off before you can fly out. All right. Last, calories. Yeah. Last one uh, in this category, uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, aside from, from everything else uh, that he did in that movie, uh, the, the uh, putting on that pilot's uniform and sitting in the jump seat and kind of, kind of meshing into everything, I'm thinking, uh, it's like that would be a dream of a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just, I, I loved that part of the movie. I was just envisioning, oh, yeah, that could be me. I could just be all over that. You know, I'd be, love to sit in a jump seat. Of a, of a big airline. So um, yeah, there may be some dramatization there, but, but you know, it, it's also a sign of how things have changed from a security and protocol standpoint. Obviously you just can't do that today, but, uh, but really, I mean, back then, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I think that it, that's plausible back in the fifties, early sixties. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's probably technology has gotten so complicated these days that like he would, I mean, I guess there's manuals that you could read or whatever, but there's probably a lot of things that you just know from just being on a plane and being trained or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you know, the, the, the private pilots, it's all hands on, but these large, large airliners, it's, it's computer driven uh, and the pilots can do the hands on if they need to, but the computer really is flying this plane from point A to point B. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to transition now. I've got a few more questions before we close up. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the process is? And I don't, I don't know, maybe this is the wrong verb to use here. When you're courting or working or uh, building a relationship with a new airline, uh, what, is that, what does that look like? Is it, is it purely a numbers game or are there like qualitative things that the airlines are interested in too before they come to a new airport? You know, it's, uh, it, it's relationship building. You, you, you get to know the airline, uh, 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 what they call network planning staff. And these are the folks that look at their network of flights. Where do they want to go next? Where should they start new service? Um, and you get to know them on a first name basis and you develop a relationship. That's number one. Number two is, you, you educate them on what's going on in your region. What's happening here in the San Joaquin Valley? What's going on? What's, you know, uh, we got the growth. We got low cost of housing, relatively speaking, to the rest of California. We've got uh, great job opportunities. The airlines like that stuff. They just eat that up. So they want to know what's going on. What kind of corporations are located here? You know, oh, God, we got the Gap. We got Ulta. We got Amazon. We got... We got major uh, agricultural uh, corporations happening here in, in the Valley doing business. And we're, you know, what is a $20 billion ag industry here and, so, and drives so many follow-on type of industries, manufacturing. So the airlines 
really like all that information. Uh, they also look at population and growth. And we say, this is what's going on. This is our growth. Uh, it's a growing area. Uh, they have metrics they use. It says that, look, if there's a, a million people in your catchment area, and a catchment area is just not the city of Fresno. And by the way, city of Fresno residents are the minority user of this airport, right? So, so yeah, absolutely. So the majority is not city of Fresno. It's countywide. It's, it's Kern, it's not so much Kern County, about 15% Kern County, but it's uh, Tulare County, Kings County, Madera, Fresno County, all the surrounding communities. Um, we have a large catchment area. We have people coming over from the central coast because they don't want to mess with, you know, the Bay Area or the LA Basin, right? Um, and all the way up to Merced and Modesto. So it's a large area, which is why we have that parking pinch I talked about. But, you know, so the airlines look at all this and go, yeah, there's opportunity here. If there's 2 million people in our catchment area, but we don't have 2 million people getting on a plane, they're going, there's additional opportunity here. And what's interesting is every time an airline adds seats into our market, whether it's a larger aircraft or more flights, or Southwest Airlines, a new one, um, they fill up. Normally that doesn't happen. Normally what happens is, you know, it kind of takes away from others. Uh, it's maybe only 60% full instead of 90% full on the aircraft, but they immediately fill up. So we are not yet at a point where, where we're saturated with number of seats, airline seats in our market. And the airlines know this, right? So we, we portray that information. Um, and then we, they have what's called, uh, and, and pardon the use of this phrase, speed dating. So there are conferences throughout the United States and uh, North America where uh, all the airlines go to. I mean, all of them go there. And uh, I prepare packages of information that's unique to the San Joaquin Valley and our airport and the capabilities of our airport. And in advance, I will make appointments with, with airlines I think might be a great fit. I've met with... Um, obviously Southwest on an ongoing basis over the years, and they finally pulled the trigger, right? Um, Spirit, um, um, Sun Country, uh, a number of other airlines. I also continue to meet with United, Delta, Alaska, American. They already are here. But what I talk about is you're established, you've got an operation here, so there's no real big startup costs. But have you looked at Houston? Have you looked at Minneapolis? These are big markets for us, and here's the numbers. And they know the numbers too. So we just, this is an ongoing dialogue. Then what happens is if we really think there's some interest, I'll make an appointment and go to their corporate headquarters and meet with a higher level, if you will, and just continue to sell our region. So that when they behind the scenes are saying, you know, it's time for us to do some expansion, let's look more seriously in Fresno. What's going on there? Does that fit within our corporate strategy? So it's really setting the seed and developing it all along the way. Sometimes it, you don't see any fruit from that for years and years, and other times it happens pretty quick. Yeah. Let's uh, go to 20,000 feet, no pun intended, but uh, and look at like strategy um, and thinking about uh, a fresno size airport. So obviously your strategy with a fresno size airport is going to differ from a major international airport. How does it differ and uh, what, what, is, what is kind of your big picture for where Fresno will be five, 10 years from now? Well, it starts with knowing your market. And, and this airport is a, what's called an origination and destination market. They call it an OND market. Compared to larger airports like a Boston or a San Francisco, for example, those are connecting airports. They're hub airports. You fly in from somewhere, you're flying in from the, the the Pacific Rim, flying in from Japan, San Francisco, and then you get off a plane, transfer, and then you're going to you know, Kansas City, or you're going to Fresno. You're going, so there, that's a huge difference. And the airport uh, design, the layout, the, the thinking that goes behind the operation is very different. So we're, we're, planes come here, people fly out. We don't connect anywhere. There's nobody coming into the terminal that, that arrives waits for the next plane out to go somewhere else. It's either coming here or going out. It's called an O&D airport. Smaller regional airports are like this. So that's a huge difference in, in, in how that airport is run, how it's designed, right? So it, it's, it's very detailed analysis on, on 
on, on how long planes are going to be at the gate. Can they stay on the gate overnight or not overnight? All these factors come into play based on this type of airport, and that plays into the layout of the airport, the size of the airport, right? Yeah. Um, one question that's kind of a <laughs> out of left field a little bit, um, but I was thinking about sound pollution um, and where our, where our airport's located, which is in the middle of, the, of a city. Um, does, that, does that present kind of a ceiling in terms of the size of the planes that can eventually fly out of Fresno? You know, it doesn't for us. You know, we, we, we know what the noise that is created from the airport are on the community. We actually have noise maps that tell us what that is. Um, and, um, and, and generally noise is defined as a 65 decibel uh, noise level. Okay. okay? And, and there's a formula behind what that means. Um, you know, we have the military here with the F-15s. And that's what drives the noise out of our airport. And we have never really had an issue from a community standpoint. They embrace the military. They understand why they're here and what they're doing. They respect what they're doing. So we get very, very few noise complaints a year. We do get them once in a while, you know, half a dozen, maybe a year. And usually the reason we get them is because of there's some operation that wasn't at the normal schedule. Mm. An F-18 came, you know, flew out of here at, you know, 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And so people will deal with pain if they know when it's coming, I think. Is yeah, that kind of what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that, that's exactly. And that doesn't happen too often. And usually, usually they're pretty good about saying, hey, look, we're gonna, we got something going out a little strange here. So they put, we, they put a notice out to the community from a, a media release standpoint. So, or if there's some special event that the, that the military is running. But usually if you strip away the military piece on the civilian side, these airplanes are getting quieter. Uh, they're respectful. Um, if there's no wind, they're taken off to the east, right? Just because there's really not much east of the airport. Uh, but that's a no-wind condition. Usually if there's any kind of breeze or wind, they got to take off to the west. They have to. Um, so, but yeah, no, it's, it's um, we're sensitive to it. We have a noise program. If you're within this kind of eligibility boundary, the FAA funds uh, people coming, you know, coming and, 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 and upgrading the windows and the insulation in their homes if they're close proximity. That program has been going on since 1990, actually. Really? And so, and, and it doesn't cost a homeowner anything. So that's, that's just an, an ongoing program that uh, we're committed to and the FAA is committed to providing the funding. So, so um, it's interesting when, when that noise program, every so many years we redo the eligibility boundary because things change at the airport. The last time was when the military switched from the F-16s to the F-15s because one engine to two engines, right? Yeah. Um, we got no, no complaints. We got no negative comments. Um, it was all about great. We love that you're here. Um, when can we get our home treated? You know, so, yeah, so that's, it's, that's it's a really good relation. It's not true everywhere, but here in Fresno, uh, it's a really good relationship with the community. Yeah. Uh, let's close by talking about a little bit about you in terms of uh, being a pilot and then the next generation of pilots. Um, you know, I know there's programs up and down, uh, well, maybe not up and down the valley. I know there's a, a good program in Reedley, and they're, there's, they're trying to recruit more pilots. Uh, do we need more pilots? And um, if, if someone's thinking about becoming a pilot, um, how long is the process? Is it expensive? I mean, is this something that, like, uh, is, you know, if you're graduating high school um, and want to pursue a career in aviation, that's something that uh, is doable? You know, and I'm glad you asked this question. There is absolutely a huge pilot shortage, not just nationwide, worldwide. It's so severe when you look forward to the next generation that, yes, you've got these flight schools like Reedley. You've got the private flight schools. We've got one here at this airport. There's one at Chandler. Most airports have some flight schools, one form or another. Um, that you can, and it, it can be expensive. I mean, you can get your pilots private pilot's license for about maybe $10,000, $12,000, right? Um, but then you got the instrument rating and then you got the commercial rating and you get all this. But this pilot shortage is so severe, a lot of the major airlines are actually recruiting and have their own pilot training programs. They bring you on with no experience. You apply, you interview, uh, you know, you have the aptitude, whatever they do, 
and they actually send you to their training facilities for, for training. So, and this didn't always used to be the case. Now, it, it, it used to be the case, you get your private license, your, your, your instrument license, your commercial, all that on your own. You're, you're on your own. You got to do this thing and it can add up. Then you apply for an airline and then they'll take it from there and train you on the different type of aircraft. Maybe a smaller one than the 737, the 767 and so forth. But now they're starting to look at taking pilots with no experience into a program because they need them in their system. So there is a great opportunity. Um, it takes a commitment. Yeah. I'm a little old school. I did it myself. I found somebody who had a plane. They were an instructor. I got my license. Then a couple of years later, I got my instrument rating. And I absolutely enjoy it. It's been a while now. I don't have a plane. I miss it a little bit. But, you know, um, I qualify for my uh, commercial, but I didn't take that next step. But because that's not the career choice. I mean, I'm an architect, right? It happens yeah. to be running an airport. But, yeah. you know, but it does give me a different perspective and just this environment and what pilots have to deal with. So absolutely a shortage. You talk to any airline, they're going to say, yeah, there's a shortage and we need pilots. And it's, it's a, it's a fascinating lifestyle. I mean, I, I had a friend um, when I helped, when I was coaching a robotics team, uh, one of the guys that helped out was a, was a FedEx pilot. And he just had, you know, I mean, obviously he had nine days off 20 on or nine days on 20 off. And he was, he would, he would text me when he was skiing in Dubai. You know, he just had some amazing experiences and, uh, and you know, good pay, good packages, everything. And so I think it's a, it's a career more people should think about if, if, they, if they're interested. Um, let's close by talking about books um, or resources or whatever. Um, what are some books or resources or different things that you, if people want to learn more about aviation or uh, airports and travel? What would you recommend? Well, and, and you know, I, I personally am not a huge book reader, but um, you know, uh, something that exists today, it has existed for a little while that didn't exist years ago is obviously the internet. There is so much resources out there. These days, all you need to put in your search engine is what would it be like to be a pilot, right? What would it be like to work at an airport? How do they do this? It's this endless resource, right? So um, and, and, and that's, that's where I do my research. That's where I look at things. Um, I, I mean, I totally enjoy uh, here at the airport. It, it's a huge family out here. Um, it's, 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 even though I'm the director, it's really, you know, everybody's kind of on an equal level. We're all in this together. You know, uh, airport and aviation security and safety are a big deal. We're all part of that kind of fabric and environment. And, um, it, you know, there's no one person that says, well, you should do it that way or that way. It's really, really a very inclusive type of, uh, of career out here at the airport. No matter what job, you could be working for an airline. You could be working for TSA. You could actually be working for the airport itself. And what people don't realize is at our, our little regional airport, we've got maybe 2,000 workers, right? Wow. Well, the airport itself, my staff is about 125, 130. That's it. You know, we maintain the facility, we execute uh, projects and build things, we custodians, you know, we just make sure everything is there. But the lion's share of those folks that work out here at the airport are really, you know, the, the TSA is about 150 people, all the airlines, rental car people. Customs and Border Protection, I mean, it's just on, on, the restaurant workers and the gift and news. It's just, it's a huge, just, it's a mini city is what it is. That, and we're all one family. Yeah. Last question for you. Yes. Uh, when's the parking structure going to be done? October. All right. And I will tell you, I got an email um, yesterday morning. No, actually it was today, Tuesday. I got an email Sunday. 60 stalls left in the main lot. Wow. And so people go, well, what's, how's the, how's the pandemic impacting the airport? And remember I said pinch points parking. Well, this no longer discussion of recovery. We are already exceeding on a daily basis, the pre pandemic numbers right now, today, today was 119% of the same day pre pandemic. So we're, we're back. And so when I hear that our main parking lot only had 60 stalls less left, what does that do? Stress level goes up. I can't find a place to park. 
And so that parking garage, I wanted it to come online sooner. Uh, it did get delayed a little bit last summer. Um, but right now, October, so well before the holiday season. And you know what happens during the holiday season. Yeah. I think everybody, most people will be vaccinated by the time we get to the holiday season. People are going to feel more comfortable. So the extent that we're already back now, it's going to be a busy summer. By the time we get to this holiday and the parking structure is done in October, it's like, what pandemic? We're back to normal and people are doing things that, that they enjoy doing. Yeah. I'm in a trademark phrase right now. Based yeah. on this conversation, I think we're going to have the soaring 20s and maybe uh, not the roaring 20s. I love it. <laughs> there we I go. Well, thanks for talking to me, Kevin. I really appreciate this. All right. I appreciate your time. In the US, Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. As always, you can support the podcast by either making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best, or by leaving a rating and review. Both go a long way to making this podcast sustainable. We'll see you next time.